to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on May 3rd, 2015, on the basis of John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. What's the best way to generate hype? There's been a lot of hype in the air recently. Apple's watch finally hit the market. The latest Avengers movie is now in theaters. Fans of all 32 NFL teams are convinced that the players their team drafted are going to take them to the Super Bowl this year. And of course, last night there was a boxing match that boxing fans have been waiting for for five years. And all of that has involved a whole lot of hype. But none of that compares to the hype surrounding what we're talking about today. The hype about love. You're familiar with some of that hype. It was the Beatles who told us that all you need is love. It was Meatloaf who said, I would do anything for love. Diana Ross and the Supremes urged us to stop in the name of love. And even as we watched the Titanic go down, Celine Dion encouraged us by saying, love can touch you one time but last for a lifetime. Now maybe none of that hype gets you all that hyped up because after all those are just songs. But I'm guessing you would take the words of Jesus a little bit more seriously. There Jesus was with his disciples. It was the night before he died, gathered together in what we call the upper room. The time that Jesus had to spend with his disciples was running out. And so Jesus wanted them to know what he wanted them to be doing after he went away. Jesus wanted them to know how their lives would continue to have purpose and meaning even after he left. He wanted you and I to know the very same thing. He wanted you and I to have a reason to get out of bed each morning and a way to look back at the end of each day and know with absolute certainty that our lives are more than just a series of trivial tasks. Our lives are more than just a series of mindless routines that our lives matter, that we are making an impact in our world. What's going to deliver all of that to us? Well, Jesus says it's love. Now, of course, when Jesus was talking about love, he wasn't talking about romance the way that a lot of those songs are. Jesus was talking about the way that you and I treat one another, the way that we treat the people around us. And in the course of that conversation about love, we're going to see that Jesus makes some seemingly outlandish statements about love, statements that seem just too good to be true, statements that are so extreme that maybe we would even be tempted to ask, can love really live up to all this hype? One of the ways that that you can generate hype about something is by calling it new. Think about how many companies advertise their products as new or improved, revolutionary, outside the box, game-changing, next generation. Gets us all excited, doesn't it? You can imagine Jesus' disciples being excited when Jesus leaned in and said to them, a new command I give you. What would it be? some sort of secret handshake, a magic spell that they could use to to cure people of their diseases or drive out demons. 
Well, you can imagine their disappointment when Jesus simply said, love one another. That's it? Hadn't that command been around for centuries? Didn't God give that very same command on Mount Sinai through the prophet Moses 1,500 years prior to this? It would be like me saying, listen, I've got this great new tool that I invented. It's unlike anything you've ever seen before. It's going to change the way that you do work for the rest of time. I call it a hammer. Jesus says that love is new, but, but is love really new? Another way that you can quickly generate hype is by calling something exclusive. As in, you might find all kinds of similar products out there, but this one is the real deal. This one is the genuine article. Often imitated, but never really duplicated. This is why we want the pair of basketball shoes that has the little swoosh on the side. This is why we want the letters on the front of our car to be BMW more than GMC. We want things to be exclusive. And Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. In other words, no one is going to think that you follow anyone else except me. And no one is going to think that anyone else follows me except you. This is going to be your signature trait, your defining characteristic. And again, you can man imagine their disappointment when Jesus simply said yet again, I want you to love one another. Really? Doesn't every religious leader tell his followers to love one another? Can't we look around at the world around us and find all kinds of people being nice to one another, even people that aren't followers of Jesus? Jesus calls love exclusive, something that only Christians have, but, but is it really? Friends, this is what Jesus wants you to be up to while he is away. This is the brand new revolutionary idea, the game changer, the way that you can have an impact on the world simply to love. He calls it new, he calls it exclusive, but is it either one? Can love really live up to all of this hype? I suppose it depends on how you define love. In the never-ending debate between religion and non-religion, between Christianity and atheism, one of the questions that often gets asked by people on the religion side of things is this, without religion, why would anyone ever be nice to someone else? Or if there is no God, why would anyone do good? Well, a man by the name of Richard Dawkins, who is probably the most important voice for atheism in our world today, has sought to answer that question. He's tried to provide reasons why, even if there is no God, and even if our only purpose in life is our own survival, why we would still treat other people nicely. The first reason is reciprocation. I do something nice for you, maybe you'll do something nice for me. Second reason is reputation. If I go around doing a lot of good things, that means I get to walk around wearing a good guy badge. And that's a good thing. The third reason is social position. If 
I treat someone nicely, if I do something for someone else, it means that I am strong and self-sufficient. It means that they are weak, needy, and helpless. I am superior, they are inferior. And then finally, there's a genetic reason. If we are products of evolution, then we have an instinctual desire for our own survival. And not only for our own, but also for those who have the same genetic traits as we do. So that's why, generally speaking, human beings care more about other human beings than they do about animals and plants. And that's also why the people that we are nicest to in this world are the people that have the most traits that are similar to us, our children and our family. When you think about it, it's actually quite an astute assessment for why people in our fallen world still treat one another reasonably well. And we can look around at the world around us and we can see this kind of thing going on all the time. People being nice to other people. That's certainly nothing new with Christianity. That's certainly nothing exclusive with Christianity. And we can admit that freely. Because when Jesus says, I want you to love one another, he isn't talking about anything remotely close to that. That's how Richard Dawkins defines love. How does Jesus define love? He says, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, our love for each other equals Jesus' love for us. That's what Jesus wants us to think of when we think of love. Not doing something for someone else with the hope of getting something in return, but being completely willing to give everything to someone else without expecting to get anything in return. And yes, that makes love, that kind of love, completely new. Think back to that command that God had given through Moses on Mount Sinai, the command to love one another. God knew that he needed to provide a definition for that love. And as he thought about our sinful condition in a fallen world, God knew that the highest form of love that he could point to is the way that we as human beings naturally love ourselves. And so that old, old command went like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. But now with Jesus' arrival, mankind had seen a form of love unlike anything it had ever seen. The kind of love that is willing to give absolutely everything without the expectation of anything in return. This is the kind of love that Jesus talked about, the kind of love that he demonstrated in the way that he treated other people. Finally, it's the kind of love that he showed fully by offering his life for us on the cross. So yes, that makes this kind of love new, and it also makes it exclusive. You see, as Christians, you and I know that because of the love Jesus demonstrated to us, there is absolutely nothing left for us to gain with God. Our sins have all been forgiven. Our status is absolutely secure. Our eternity in heaven is completely guaranteed. 
All of that because of the love that Jesus showed to us. So as we show love to one another, not only is it not with the expectation of getting something in return, but it's also not with the expectation of gaining brownie points with God. There's no guilt involved. There's no fear or coercion that motivates us. That love can be shown absolutely freely, absolutely willingly. It's the kind of love that only someone who knows that their sins are forgiven can possibly show. So yes, it's new. And yes, it's exclusive. But that probably leaves what is arguably the biggest question of them all. Do I really want to live that way? We might agree with Jesus that this kind of love is is something new. It's something the world has never seen. And it's exclusive. It's something that only Christians can truly show. But maybe we would still wonder whether or not love can really live up to the hype. Do I really want to live this way? Is living this way going to bring meaning and value and purpose and impact to my life? Or is living this way just going to make me miserable? If everyone else around me is living by the Richard Dawkins rules, survival of the fittest, dog eat dog, might makes right, kill or be killed, and I'm over here living like Jesus, where is that going to get me? Isn't that going to put everyone else ahead and leave me behind? Isn't that going to make me a doormat for everyone else around me? If we've ever asked ourselves those questions, and, and because we've all asked ourselves those questions at times, probably the thing to do is to go back to the very first words that Jesus spoke in these verses. You see, before he ever made any of these extravagant claims about love, he made one extravagant claim about himself. He said, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So think about that for a minute. The verses open up by telling us that Judas had just walked out of the room. And we know what Judas is going to do. He's going to betray Jesus. And we know where that betrayal is going to lead. It's going to lead to 24 hours of unspeakable agony for Jesus. And Jesus knows that full well, just like we do. And yet he still says, Now... The time for my glory has arrived. Not three days from now when I rise from the dead on Easter Sunday. Not 40 days from now when I go back up into heaven and am seated on my throne. Not will I be glorified, but right now I am glorified. And by doing so, Jesus was once again tying one of his outlandish claims inseparably to his death and resurrection. It was almost like Jesus was saying, look, there are two different ways that people live in this world. There's the way that you see going on all around you. We might call it the Richard Dawkins Manual for Living. Survival of the fittest, might makes right. And then there's the way that I've told you to live. I'm telling you right now that this is the one that leads to glory. But I don't expect you simply to take my word for it. Let's talk again in 72 hours, and you can tell me if I'm right. So what happened during those 72 hours? Well, you had Judas, 
who betrayed Jesus out of greed. He wanted more money. The Jewish leaders arranged for his death out of jealousy. Pontius Pilate ordered his execution out of career ambition. And even the disciples ran in fear from their own survival instincts. You had everyone acting the same way, and then you had Jesus. Only thinking about others, willingly laying down his life on the cross. Which one won? Well, if Jesus had stayed in that tomb, there would have been a crystal clear winner. And yet, 72 hours later, and maybe even in exactly that same room, Jesus was once again standing with his disciples, now risen from the dead. And as a result, there is a crystal clear winner. It's no wonder that as Jesus prepared to demonstrate this kind of love to his disciples, he said, this is where the glory is at. And then he proved it by rising from the dead. So friends, you and I can know with absolute certainty that the same opportunity belongs to us. That living this way doesn't mean falling behind. That living this way doesn't make you a doormat. Rather, that living this way leads and brings glory. That by living this way, you and I really do have the opportunity to bring to our world something that it has never seen to bring to our world something that they cannot find anywhere else, to bring to our world a little taste of heaven, to be the face of Jesus, the hands, feet, and mouth of Jesus to the world around us. You and I can know with absolute certainty that we can claim our own small share of the very glory that Jesus claimed, and we can bring glory to our Father in heaven just like he did. So yes, Jesus makes some outlandish claims about love. But no more outlandish than the claims he made about himself. No more outlandish than the claims he made about his work for us or about the impact that work has on us. And yet every single one of his claims, just like this one, is validated by his resurrection from the dead. If a man can walk out of his own grave alive, then no matter how great the hype, you can rest assured that Jesus can live up to every bit of it. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.